The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thank you. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, it's page number 836 on the Bible that is in front of you there. Is it just me or does it feel like a long time since we've been in Mark? been a long time. It's been six weeks. I was counting uh, this morning, just trying to remember the last time we were here. It's been six weeks. The uh, week before Thanksgiving, we talked about the training thing, and then Jamie and I were gone for a little bit. And then we've had three weeks of Christmas stuff, and everybody's been gone. So it's been it's been a lot of stuff going on in between. I'm glad to be back to, to some normalcy. I don't know about you, but I kind of like normal normal life better than I like abnormal life, I guess. I don't know. Uh, it has been a long time since I've been able to be up here with you, and since it's been so long, I haven't been able to do some one of the things that I like to do whenever I go on a trip. And normally that is when we go on a trip, I, I come back and I show you some pictures of things that interested me or intrigued me, made me laugh or whatever while we were gone, and so I haven't had a chance to do that since we were gone. So I'm going to show them to you today, even though it's been a while now. Uh, the first one is going to make, I have three of them. The first one is going to make some of you very hungry. Those of you who are either from the upper Midwest or have ever lived there, been there, etc. I'll just put it up and then I'll let you, there we go. I just had a delay. Culver's. Now, how many of you don't know what Culver's is? Raise your hand. Okay. Oh, a lot of you. More than I expected. Culver's is kind of like a, a, a nice fast food chain in the upper Midwest. I think it's based in Wisconsin, but it's all throughout Illinois, Minnesota. I think Michigan too. Is it in Michigan? Yeah. Indiana. So it's around that part of the world. And Culver's is known for two specific menu items more than any other. The first one is butter burgers. Okay. Does that sound good or what? Butter burgers. And the second one, I'll let all of you who know what it's known for help me. What's the second menu item that Culver's is best known for? Who said water? Oh, <laughs> frozen, no, not custard, frozen cheese curds. What's wrong with you? Frozen cheese curds. You got me all messed up now. Fried cheese curds. How many of you have ever had a cheese curd? Okay, you're, you're like, oh, that sounds disgusting. But it, when you hear the word curd, you need to think of it like you think of the word sour and sour cream. Like who wants to eat sour cream, right? But sour cream is actually quite good. A cheese curd, you think curdled, it's, no, 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 it's delicious. It's like the best cheese you've ever had in your life. When you get them fresh, they're squeaky. You put them in your mouth and they squeak against your teeth. I know that sounds weird, but they're good. But Culver's, Culver's takes them and they batter them and deep fry them. And so Jamie and I went to Culver's and we got some uh, takeout to bring back home to the kids and Jamie's mom and our niece and nephew. And on the way, we got a thing of cheese curds to share. And oh man, was it good. So that's picture number one. The uh, Culver's box. Number two requires a little bit of intro uh, to explain. So as m- many of you in here know, if you've been here for any length of time, you know, Jamie, I'm sorry not to pick on you here, but Jamie was from a very conservative church background. When I use the word conservative, I'm not talking about like theologically conservative because we're theologically conservative. She was from a very culturally conservative background. So women can never wear anything other than skirts, long skirts and Anything that wasn't, any instrument of music that wasn't used like in a classical orchestra was of the devil, like right off the bat. Okay, so it was that kind of conservativeness I'm describing here. And at some point in her past, uh, the world's greatest evangelist came to their church. 
and I'm not being sarcastic or making this up. You'll see why I'm calling him this in a moment. The world's greatest evangelists came to their church and did a series of meetings on the dangers of rock music. And apparently at the end of one of these meetings, he had a table in the back and he was selling uh, probably cassette tapes and VHS tapes and books and pamphlets and those kinds of things. And her parents bought a VHS tape. And for the kids in the room, a VHS tape is a DVD, an old DVD that came in a big black plastic box with magnetic tape inside. I know it's weird, but that was a VHS tape. This had to be 20 or 25 years ago. They bought this tape. I don't know if they ever watched it. They put it in a box at some point and forgot about it completely. And at Thanksgiving, while we were there, they were going through old boxes looking for something. And in the process, they came across this tape and they pulled it out and I had to show it to you because it's awesome. What's the thing? There we go. Rock music. And if you can't tell from this guy, he's like the Kiss reject because he doesn't have any of the black mixed in with the white. So he's uh, the Kiss reject. His head is cracking open and flames are shooting out of the top of his head. His arm is splitting in half, I think, as well, and flames are also coming out of it. There's two questions there. Is there a, a, a link or a tie between rock music and teen suicide? And the next one is, can rock music change your morals or values? And, and see this little diagonal box that's here? It says, even though it's not a sticker, it's printed on the box, world's greatest evangelist, right there. Now, they, funny enough, had a second video on humility by the same guy. World's humblest evangelist, that one said. And, uh, you know, there, I, I, I looked at this, and I'm thinking of it from a, a, a teaching or, or preaching a pastoral perspective, and I recognize that there are dangers in all kinds of things in this world, right? Okay, there are things that we legitimately need to be concerned about. There are things even that Christians should never do. Like, I get that, but there, there's a line you cross somewhere between teaching and manipulation, and when I saw this picture and the guy's skull is cracking open and flames are shooting out of it, I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure this guy crossed the line somewhere along the way, just saying. Third picture is one that really doesn't need much of an introduction. You'll recognize these people. Most of you in here will. Oh, it was the Cordones, okay? For those of you who don't know who these are, uh, this, these people are, this is a family who came to our church for five or six years. They actually came shortly after they became believers. Not many of you know this, but Jared and Sharon were directly involved in them coming to Christ and grew here, served here, loved being here, left with great tears. The Navy would not reconsider their uh, decision to move them up to Great Lakes. And so uh, Alonzo's up there teaching engineering now at Great Lakes. And so when we were there, we went and visited them uh, for a while. I'll just say beyond anything else I was going to say, if you ever want to go visit someone who lives in base housing and have a good time, go to theirs because this is the best base housing I have ever seen in my life. It is beautiful beautiful homes about a half block or a block from Lake Michigan, about 40 minutes north of downtown Chicago. So when you think of Lake Michigan, you might think of like a dirty, like three-eyed fish kind of thing, you know, swimming around, and you're probably right about much of that. Uh, Up where they're at, it's not like that. There's actually big cliffs that overlook the lake, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And so we had gone down the cliffs and come down onto the shoreline and took the picture there. And I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I'm doing it, I hope, out of right motivation and hopefully as an encouragement to you because it encouraged me. I'm going to brag on the Cordones for just a moment. So they moved to Chicago again with great tears, fighting and screaming along the way. They didn't want to leave, but they left, okay? And 
when they got there, we had given them a number of suggestions for churches to try in their area. We don't really know that part uh, of, I mean, they're, like I said, 40 minutes north of the city up between Wisconsin and, and Chicago. We gave them a number of suggestions of churches to try so they could find a church home, and they went to a number of them, went to a few others that people had suggested along the way. Nothing was quite the right fit. And we had talked a long time ago about the possibility of them going to help Bill and Tamara Branks, our, our church planners down in the downtown area in the River North area of the city. But it's such a long drive, obviously that's not an ideal setup for them. And so they looked closer at first, but when they couldn't find anything, one Sunday they said, well, let's just, let's just go to the city and see what it's like. So here they you know, load up all the kids and they drive 35, 40 minutes to the city. They have to find a place to park. No, nothing short of a miracle. I think Jesus had to park something for them to find a place to park. So they find parking, and they go into a building, and you've got to go up to like the fifth or seventh floor. I forget what floor they meet on in this building that the Brinks uh, have used for years now. And they go up in there, and you walk in the room, and there's like 50 to 75 people total in, in this church. And of these 50 to 75, no lie, about 5 to 10 are homeless, two or three of which are probably drunk and asleep in the back of the room. Then you've got a pretty large portion of college-aged kids and singles uh, in that part of the city. And then you've got a, a handful of older people, and then you've got a handful of couples, all of, out of all of which only one of the couples had children. It was two kids in one family. So if you are the Cordones and you're visiting a, a church and you walk into that, after all that other stuff, you know, 45 minutes of driving and having to park and going down the sidewalk and five or seven, whatever stories up, you're probably, most people walk into that and they say, well, I'll sit here politely this time, but after that, I'm probably going to look for something else. And here the Cordones walked in and they looked at this scene and they said, here's a church that needs some help. And so they committed to stay. They doubled in two to five. Huge inc- improvement. Uh, they started teaching the kids. They started working with Bill and Tamara, just being an encouragement to them. And I, I was talking to them and just thinking, wow, what has God done in five years? from a family that was an unbelieving family to now one who doesn't view church as something that's ultimately about them and meeting their needs, but it's ultimately about Jesus and meeting the needs that he has within his body. And so, you know, it just highlighted for me something that we've said in years gone by that we tend to forget sometimes. When you live in a Navy town and the average time that you keep a family in your seats is about four years, it's easy to become discouraged and feel like, woe is me going to leave. I don't want to, you know, don't want to build a deep relationship because they're going to, they're going to be gone. And we've exhorted you, the elders have exhorted you in the past. Don't look at it negatively. Look at it positively. We have about four years to pour a think, a, a way of thinking about the church, a way of thinking and living for Jesus into someone so that when they leave, they get to go off and be a blessing to another church and spread that somewhere else as well. And now here the Cordones are in Chicago and they're living that out practically, in, in 45 minutes from their house, in, in a, a, a fifth or seventh floor with a whole bunch of homeless people and college-aged kids and two other children that aren't their own, and they're serving Jesus. I was super encouraged. Even we got uh, the merits in today. I don't know if you noticed them there, but there's Dustin and Hannah, so it's good to have them back. I was talking to Dustin on the phone the other day before they got here, and guess where they're at, what, what, where their church meets? In a school. Didn't you learn anything? Why'd you go back to that? You're too scared to move on. Oh, you know, once you get comfortable with something, it's hard to go. I mean, who? I just am so encouraged by that. And I, again, I hope my heart's right in, in saying all these things to you. I want you to be encouraged by that as well, that God uses small things. 
and he uses them for bigger purposes than what many of us will ever live to see. We have no clue what, what he does here, how that'll, how that'll affect other things. And so I was encouraged by that. I wanted to show the pictures to you. All right, that's it. Enough of the pictures. Back to Mark 1. Sorry for that little delay here, but thought it would be helpful for us to start with that. Um, so normally I, I like to begin by reading the passage of Scripture that I'm actually going to be teaching from. I'm not doing that today. I'm actually choosing to read the passage of Scripture that we last read. Okay, When we were in Mark back on November 17th, right, this was the last passage of Scripture we read. So I'm going to read it again, and then I'll explain what we're going to do today, and I think you'll understand why I'm doing this. But if you will, look at Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verses 35 to 45. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 35, Mark writes this. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them that he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus, we just stop up front, and we just thank you for your ability, your, your willingness to take us and all of our uncleanness and our sin and to turn us and change us and open our eyes and clean us so that you can use us for your glory. And and it's easy sometimes for us to focus down on these little minutiae kind of things that are around us and get caught up in the the stress and the, the, the daily things that go on and just think maybe things aren't really happening. And yet, every now and then we get a, a chance to step back and get a larger picture of how you work in the midst of all of this. And the glory doesn't come to us. It, it goes to you. you. You alone change families. You alone change hearts. You alone set people down paths to serve you. And whatever part we get to play in that, Lord, is a blessing, but it's nothing more than that. It's not ours. And so whether it's for the Cordones or Merits or the many other families who have gone out and serve and, 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 and continue to carry the philosophy and the vision and the truth that they see and hear here, Lord, I, I just pray that you will continue to use us in that way to be a blessing, not just here locally, but to the larger body of Christ. We want you and your word and the gospel to be ultimate and central in everything that happens. And so that's in today's message. That's in things going on out with the kids right now. That's, that's in everything we're doing. Lord, will you exalt yourself? Make your name great here. Speak through me, not because my words are anything, but your word is powerful. Lord, will you take your spirit and pour it out on us this morning so that we can hear your word and be changed by it? We want you to be supreme in all of these things. So that as we come back now into Mark 1 and look ahead to Mark 2, 
we will remember that you are not like any other person. You are, you are unlike anyone else in this world. And we either have to accept that and fall down at your feet and worship, or we need to just simply reject it, walk away, and live our life out whatever way we think is best. You, you are not one to be trifled with. And so God, speak to us today. Help us to see you for who you really are, we ask in Jesus' name. Well, as I said a few moments ago, it's been a long time since we've been here together in the book of Mark, and uh, the last time we were here was November 17th, and we were looking at this passage that I read just a moment ago, Mark 1, verses 35 to 45, and then when I finished that message, I just I just stopped. I was just done, and we went on to something else the following week, and then we were gone, and everything else happened after that. And that is different than what I had originally envisioned for us as we worked through Mark. I had originally envisioned that we would kind of follow the same pattern that we did when we were working through Genesis. If you remember when we were going through Genesis, I had a practice of beginning and ending each section that we looked at in the text with sort of an introduction and a conclusion. So on the front end of it, I would take a week just to give us the 10,000-foot flyby, right, just to help you understand what's coming ahead so you could see the main features. And as we began to work through it over the, the weeks that would follow, you would, you would know what was going on. You'd know what we were talking about, why, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we got to the end of that journey, I would normally take a week just to kind of tie up all the loose ends. If there were any unanswered questions, I would try to answer those for us at that point and, and just kind of make each of those sections sort of self-contained. And I wanted to do the same thing here in Mark. So as we began Mark 1, I did an introduction. I actually did several weeks of introduction. I introduced Mark, the book as a whole, but then I also introduced this opening section of Mark where Mark is going to introduce us to who Jesus is, and I had hoped to do a conclusion to that section as well, uh, but unfortunately the calendar ran out on me, and so I wasn't able to come back and do this. Uh, We just ended, and so here we are now after a a six-week break, and we're going to try to jump back into our study of Mark, and I realize that as we do that, I don't know that we're ready just to jump right back in where we left off. I don't even know if I remember what I said after all this time uh, away from it. hope that's a joke, but, but I, want, I want to just take some time this morning to kind of do a, maybe a hybrid sermon, a hybrid message where I want to, on one hand, review everything we saw in Mark 1 just to get you back up to speed because my fear is you have lost every bit of traction you had in the book uh, over the last six weeks. Too much eggnog and turkey and everything else. Is, it's all blinded you to what was there before. So I want to review what we, we've seen, but I also want to go ahead and do that quick 10,000-foot overview of what's to come so you know where we're headed so that next week as we open up Mark chapter 2, verse 1, you're not lost. All right, I want you to know where we're going and why we're going there and what you're going to see. So is, is that clear? It's kind of review and overview all in one package. Okay, let's get started and we'll see what happens. But let's do a review of Mark chapter 1. Just walk back through it. Uh, and I'm not going to put the text up here. I'll put some points up here, but I won't put the text up here. I'm going to trust that you'll look at your, your Bibles for that. But I want to remind you simply that Mark chapter 1 is designed to introduce us to who Jesus really is. In other words, he's going to use this entire first chapter to help us as readers, us as listeners, to know something that no one else in the story outside of Jesus is going to know for some time. I mean, if you're Simon or or you're John the Baptist, you're one of the Pharisees, you're kind of processing information about Jesus as it happens. You're watching what he does. You're listening to what he says. And you may not know for months, years, maybe in some cases ever, who this man Jesus is really is. But 
But Mark doesn't want us to have that problem. He wants us as readers to know right off the bat who Jesus is. And so he gives us this entire first chapter to make sure that's clear to us. And he he uses this chapter to introduce him to us in five different ways. He begins by introducing us to the identity of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. We call this section the prologue of Mark. Do you remember that? Like uh, John has a prologue and Genesis has a prologue. Mark has a prologue. And if you look at verse 1, you notice that he begins by introducing us to three important ideas about who Jesus is. First, he is Jesus. He is Yeshua. He is salvation. He is the Savior. He's come and that's who he is. So when angel tells Joseph and Mary, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, that's designed to communicate something to us about his true nature and purpose. He's the Savior. Number two, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And number three, he's the Son of God. He is divinity united with humanity. He is God come in human form. And so right off the bat, as he introduces the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you recognize that Mark doesn't see this man like he sees any other man. This man is different. He is divine. He is the Savior. In verses 2 to 8, we saw that he's the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, that God himself would come to his people. If you read the end of the Old Testament, you remember that the Old Testament ends in a, can anyone say the word? What I thought, cliffhanger. It ends in a cliffhanger. As God has promised his people that he will send Elijah before the coming day of the Lord. When he, God himself will come and visit his people and enter into a brand new kind of relationship with his children, with his people. But you're left wondering, who is that? Who is this promised Elijah who is to come? And so as we come into Mark chapter 1, verse 2, you begin to learn who that is. It's John the Baptist. Jesus himself confirms for us that John is the Elijah who was to come. He comes to prepare the way for for Jesus, for Yahweh himself. In verses 9 to 11, we saw that this promise-fulfilling Savior Messiah is doing something else as well. Because as God had promised in the Old Testament, when he came, he was going to come bringing the Spirit with him. And so as Jesus goes down in baptism, he comes up and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And you hear the Father's voice, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we picture that just as a a good little painting, you know, that Thomas Kincaid could put together for us or something. But I argue that it's not simply, it's not simply about this one neat little scene. That when the Spirit descends, promises of the Old Testament that a new age has arrived. That the Spirit is now coming, that God is coming to his people with the Spirit just as he's promised to indwell them and live with them forever. In verses 12 to 13, we saw that temptation of Jesus. And and I think, as I I said this back then, I think we missed the point on that so easily. We see it as just an individual incident or episode where Jesus has this fight with Satan. 40 days and 40 nights without food and water, and then there's these temptations, and he wins and Satan flees from him. But I argued, again, there's more to that, because if, if it's just an, uh, an isolated scene, Mark wouldn't include it here as he tries to help us understand the true identity of Jesus. No, there's something more, something bigger and deeper. And what I think this is, is it's kind of a down payment on a larger battle that's going to take place between Jesus, Satan, sin, and death. And that the victory Jesus wins here is also a down payment on a larger victory that he will have over Satan, sin, and death. 
Because at the end of Mark's story, we're going to see another time where there's a battle between these individuals, will we not? At the cross, Jesus deals a decisive blow to Satan and achieves something that none of us could ever achieve. You see these bookends to the story here, Mark 1 and Mark 16. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. He's inaugurating the age of the Spirit, and he's doing what no one else could ever do in defeating Satan, sin, and death. This is his true identity. This is Jesus. This is why he's not like anyone else. Next, we saw the message of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. And this is pretty quick and simple because it's only two verses, right? Mark tells us, if you look at verse 14, that he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, number one, that time is fulfilled. What God had promised in the Old Testament, what he, what Israel had been waiting for, what all of history, all of humanity had been waiting for is now complete. The time is fulfilled. Number two, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's arrived. He's inaugurating something. He's introducing it, bringing it into existence here in human history. And number three, the proper response to those truths is that we should repent and believe, which I jokingly referred to as the original R&B and got a lot of flack over later on. We have to repent and believe. You know, this is the message of Jesus in a nutshell, if you think about it. Everything else he's going to teach, everything from this point on, is going to be boiled down or be boiled down to those words, repent and believe. So whether he's telling us this is how you shouldn't live, what you need to stop doing, what you need to start doing, what's that? That's repentance. Turn from your old way of life, turn to the new. And when he's calling people to believe in him and believe in what God has said and believe in the truths that God has announced and is now bringing into fulfillment in history, that's all belief. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is his message. This is what the rest of Mark is going to be filled with. How it's worded, it's these two ideas. This is the message of Jesus he introduced us to. Number three, he introduced us to the plan of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Because starting in verse 16, you have what seems like a pretty strange encounter, do you not? Because Jesus is just walking along the shoreline just randomly one day, right? And he comes across two sets of brothers that just happen to be out fixing their nets that day. And he's like, hey, follow me. Of course, they've never seen this guy before, and they're like, okay. And they just go on with him, right? Right? No? Okay. You were here. You know that's not true. No, I... Mark is simply picking up the story here with Jesus and these men at this specific moment when he calls them to himself to be his disciples. But if you back up and look at a larger story of what's going on in the Gospels, you realize this isn't the first time these guys have met. In fact, they probably have a longer history, a deeper history than what we know. And this is the moment Jesus is calling them to be his disciples. And that fascinates me and intrigues me because does Jesus need the disciples to get his plan accomplished? No. He's clearly more than capable of doing everything the Father sent him to do on his own. And yet, he purposely, at the very beginning of his ministry, he didn't even like go like halfway through and be like, oh, I'm tired. I really need some help. I better get some people, like call the temp agency and see who they can send over kind of thing. At the very beginning of his ministry, He makes a decision to bring a handful of men to himself who he will pour his life 
into for three years. Train them, teach them, let them live life with him so that when he's gone, they can continue the work. And you say, well, maybe that's why he did it, right? Because he knows he's going to die and he needs someone to continue the work. Well, again, he didn't have to die. He chose to die. Everything about Jesus' ministry is purposeful and chosen by him which means that it's part of God's master plan for the universe that he would take weak, sinful, foolish men, people like us, and use us, use these guys to carry out that master plan for the universe. Uh, that's a little mind-blowing, a little, a little hard to take because I see so much failure in me, and there's plenty of failure in these guys, right? You see it all the time. And yet here Jesus is. He's taking them. He's going to train them. He's going to use them. And if that's true, and it is, then maybe that means we need to pay, pay better attention to, to Jesus and how he interacts with these guys and how he teaches these guys and what he expects of these guys. Because in the end, he's all expecting all the same things out of us. This is his plan to use weak, foolish men. Number four. We saw the power of Jesus, power of Jesus in, in, in Mark 1, verses 21 to 34. This is one of my favorite parts of Mark 1. Remember this, it's that Sabbath day. It's two scenes from the Sabbath day. It's a Saturday, and in the first scene is probably Sabbath day morning, and Jesus is in the synagogue. And, and there's two times in the story here where the people are absolutely amazed, amazed by his power and authority. The first time you see it is in verses 21 to 22 where they hand him the scroll. And so Jesus is there and he's teaching them, right? And, and, and Mark tells us that when he's teaching, the people listen to him and they're amazed because he's teaching as one with authority and not as who? Scribes. And the scribes aren't like a, a slouchy bunch of teachers either. They're the best teachers they know. They're the best under, people, the best understanding of the law, of the prophets that are available in that day. But when Jesus teaches, there's something about his knowledge, his, his presentation, all of it together, that is so far superior to the scribes that they are amazed at his authority, his power in teaching, just his words alone. While he's in the middle of teaching, you see another time when they're amazed. In verses 23 to 28, this guy sitting over in the side of the synagogue all of a sudden shouts out, I know who you are. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? He's got a demon in him. And I envision this scene a little differently now because of that picture. I, when Jesus had cast him out, I picture his head splitting open and flames shooting out of it now and arms coming apart. The demon comes out. I, how does Jesus cast that demon out? Do you remember? Does he walk over and like take his coat off like Benny Hinn and slap him and the demon flies out at that point? All he says is, be quiet, come out of him. Shut up and come out. That's all Jesus says. And instantly, instantly, the, the demon obeys. And Mark records that when the people see this demon obey Jesus simply by his words, they are amazed at his authority, at his power. And so in this first scene here, Mark has shown us Jesus' power in word. But, but there's a second scene here when he goes home. And he walks into the house of Simon and Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and they tell him about her, and so what does he do? He walks over, and he takes her by the hand and lifts her up, and instantly, instantly, fever's gone, and she's good to go. And it's, 
we don't know if Jesus said anything, but I find it interesting that Mark doesn't record any words by Jesus here. Later at sundown, at the end of Sabbath, the whole town comes together at the door with sick people and demoniacs and everybody else. And Mark tells us that Jesus goes outside and he heals them all. And again, note that Mark in the text doesn't record any words of Jesus here. What's Mark doing? I think he's drawing our attention to Jesus' power indeed. Just his ability to do apart from speaking, just to do things. And so whether it's word or deed, this man, Jesus, has power that is unknown and unmatched by anyone else. He's not, he's not like any other man. Number five, we saw the heart of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. And this is where we ended back in November when we were working through that passage I read a few moments ago. Because here now, Mark wants us to understand four things about the heart of Jesus in these, in these verses, four things that I showed you at least number one he showed us that jesus truly loved god you remember why i said that it's because jesus went out and did what he prayed he went out and prayed why did jesus pray it's because he needed something that he couldn't do is it because there's something he didn't know and he needed god to give him some information wisdom etc no Jesus knows everything, he can do everything, so why is he praying here? And I argue that it's simply to spend time with the Father because he loves him. He wants to fellowship with him and be with him, and therefore we should be like him. Number two, Mark shows us that Jesus never lost sight of what truly mattered to God because here he is praying and the disciples come out and, every, and they say to him, Lord, everyone is looking for you. And I told you, if you remember, that that word looking there is special in Greek. Mark only uses that particular Greek word for looking ten times. And every time he uses that word, it's always something negative. So they're looking to betray him. They're looking to kill him. That kind of stuff. Here, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And you say, what's so negative about that? They just couldn't find him. Well, I think you find the answer for that in the way Jesus responds. When they say to him, everyone is looking for him, what does he say? Oh, tell him I'm right here. No, he says, hey, let's get out of town. Let's go. Because he knows why they're looking for him. And they're not looking for him because they want to hear more about the gospel. They want to hear more about God. They want to know him better. They're looking for him because I think they want more people healed, more demons cast out. They don't want to lose their here. And if he takes off, they're in trouble. And so they're looking for him. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, I I know why I came. I came to preach. So let's go to the other towns because that's why I came out to preach there also. He never lost sight of what mattered to God and we shouldn't either. Number three, I said he felt compassion for those God loved. That's the story of the leper. Can you get those images of of leprosy out of your mind to this day? Okay, because I put those up there and those were gross. Uh, Sorry, feel sorry about that. And this leper comes up to him and he violates every norm you would expect. Because medically, he's an outcast. He's got a contagious skin disease that's going to probably lead to death. Religiously, he's supposed to be out of the camp, away from all the people. He's never supposed to approach anyone. Culturally, he's viewed as a sinner, and that's why he has this disease in the first place. He's, a, he's an outcast. But, but what does Jesus do to him? He touches him. Just, just think of that. Just picture that scene. As Jesus reaches down his hands and touches this leper. He touches him, he speaks kindly to him, and he heals him. Jesus feels compassion for those God loves, no matter what their circumstances are. And then fourth and finally, 
there, we saw that Jesus has a heart that was humble and obedient before God. Because as soon as the guy is clean, as soon as the guy is healed, what did Jesus do with him? Shoo, get away. Go find the priest. And I said, it was completely opposite of what you would expect. Because for most people, if, if the guy's a leper, they're going to shoo the leper away. But if he's clean, they're like, oh, well, come on in. Well, Jesus welcomes the leper in his uncleanness and sends him away in his cleanness. Why? Well, according to the text, it's so he could go and see the priest who could then pronounce him clean. And when I saw that in the text, I was so amazed because I'm like, he's not going to get any more clean than he is right now. Right? I mean, if Jesus cleanses you from leprosy, do you have anything else left to be cleansed from? No. And yet, in Jesus' mind, he's not clean until the priest says he is. Why? That's what God commanded. And here is God in flesh. Even in all of his power and his authority and his might, he is unwilling to in any way usurp God's commands. And so he sends the man immediately to the priest to be declared clean. And the man goes. Of course, he disobeys Jesus in the way because Jesus says, don't tell anyone what happened. When the man goes out and talks about it freely, you just see obedience and humility pouring out of Jesus in the scene. And we should be like that as well. And so that was Mark 1. You say, why did it take so many weeks if that was all there was there, all that was there, right? Well, when you, when you consider the identity of this man, his message, his plan, his power, his heart, you can say with all certainty, can you not, that this man, Jesus, is not like any other man. He's not. Mark couldn't be any clearer here. That, that's what we've seen. Now, pause, and I want to look ahead for a moment. Where, where are we headed here? Let me just quickly walk you through the next section. It's going to be Mark chapter 2, verse 1, to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. We're going, to, we're going to see Jesus in some controversies here. We're going to see Jesus interacting with some expectations. Now that we know who he is, how does that flesh itself out in practical situations that he runs into? That's, that's where we're turning now. And so in Mark chapter 2, verse 12, you see Jesus interacting with some theological expectations that aren't quite right. This is a scene, you know it well, I'm not going to describe it or, or go into it at all, except for just a quick quick um, comment. This is a scene where Jesus is in a house and he's teaching and healing, and there are these guys who have a friend who's a paralytic, and they want Jesus to heal him, so they put him on a bed, and they can't get in the house, so what do they do? Climb up the roof. Isn't there a song for this or something? They climb up the roof, and they remove the tiles and the thatch, and they drop the guy down, and we're all sitting there wondering, is that covered by homeowner's insurance, right? Because... That's a lot of damage to do to a house, but they want this guy healed and they drop him down. And of course, Jesus, being the person who always does exactly what's expected, says to them, son, says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And immediately the the text tells us the scribes and Pharisees who are in the house are outraged. This is blasphemy. No one has the authority to forgive sins except God. So Jesus corrects them, does he not? And we see the, these theological expectations that they had of Jesus, which are wrong because they don't believe that he is who he says he is, get corrected in their eyes. And we'll look at that next week. Number two, you see Jesus interacting with some personal expectations. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, there he meets a guy named Levi. You know him better as who? Matthew? Okay. Levi is a tax collector. And tax collectors aren't exactly popular. In fact, they're looked down upon by everybody, both today and then, right? So they're looked down upon. 
and they're sinners and they're, they're, they're rejected by the, the righteous crowd. And so he calls Levi to be his, his disciple, his follower. And so what does Levi do? Levi does the natural thing. I'll go, hey, can I throw you a dinner party? Well, who's Levi's friends? The Pharisees? Nah. The other tax collectors and sinners, Mark tells us. And so he's assembled this big crowd of tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus is like, I'm in. And he goes in and he has dinner with them. And again, the scribes and Pharisees are on the outside saying, does he know who he's associating with? Does he know what kind of people he's having dinner with? And so Jesus again corrects them. That's all I'll say about it at this point. Number three, he interacts with their religious expectations. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. This is the only nice controversy in this group. Because here, this has to do with fasting and the disciples of John. The disciples of John the Baptist come to him and say, hey, Jesus, we we fast, and the Pharisees fast, but how come you and your disciples don't fast? It's an honest question. They want to know. And so Jesus explains for them why he doesn't follow this customary and expected ritual in Judaism. And we'll look at his explanation as we work forward. And then finally, you see these cultural expectations from chapter 2, verses 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. And there's actually two scenes here in this one that both have to do with the Sabbath. Because in, in, in Jesus' day, all of these cultural expectations had grown up around the Sabbath of what you could and could not do. And I told you this months ago, if there's one day of the week that Jesus is going to get in trouble, in the knot, he get in trouble on the Sabbath. And here you have two scenes of him getting in trouble on the Sabbath. The first comes when he's, he and the disciples are walking through a grain field and the disciples are hungry. So they grain off the, the, the wheat and they rub it together and Eat it. And what are they accused of? Do you remember? Work, harvesting, farming on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, are you crazy? Don't you know I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? I can't wait to get to that. As he basically just shreds the Pharisees right in front of them. And their wrong understanding of what it means to obey God in relation to the Sabbath. The second scene, he's in a synagogue. And there's a man in there with a withered hand. And I always picture Bob Dole. Remember Bob Dole? He had that hand. I met him once. This is why I think about him. I met him once, and he's, he always kept a pen in his hand like this. And I, I, I was a teenager, and I was on Capitol Hill. And uh, so he's walking up. And like an idiot, I'm like, hi, Mr. Dole. And he reaches out his left hand and grabs me. And as soon as he does, I'm like, I'm a moron. Oh, he's had a bad hand. I think of Bob Dole. So about hearing a withered hand here in the synagogue. And the, the Pharisees and the scribes are all watching. Is he going to heal him? And Jesus looks around the room and he says, tell me, is it right or wrong to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? And what answer do they give him? Nothing. Dead silence. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Healed. Instantly they're angered. Why? Because he's doing medicine. He's healing on the Sabbath. What a horrible, wicked person. How Jesus responds to these controversies and expectations is going to teach us a lot about him and about how we should live as we try to be like him and be followers of him and be disciples of him, as we said. And, and whether it's Mark 1, seeing it laid out in the introduction, or it's Mark 2 and seeing it fleshed out in life, the idea that I want you to go home with today is you're reminded of all these things here in Mark, is that this man, Jesus, is unlike any other man is that like driven home as best i can he's unlike any other man and 
And you have to, you have to process that. You have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to believe that. I, I, very rare for me to give a shout-out two weeks in a row, but George, you're going to get a second one this week. George Shower gave me an article last Sunday from the New York Times that was really quite good, and I tried to get it online and couldn't because they have that dumb rule that you have to be a subscriber to get their online content. But so I brought the article because I wasn't going to retype all this. But it's a book review column by a guy named Barton Swaim, who I don't believe is a Christian. He doesn't sound like a Christian in this book review. But he's reviewing a book called Jesus, the Human Face of God by a guy named Jay Perini. I've never heard of him. And apparently what Perini is doing is he's trying to um, make Jesus palatable to the academic mind. Okay, He's trying to present Jesus in a way that some intellectual or academic might might approve of and be willing to accept. And Swain's critique of this book is incredible because he gets what we're seeing here in Mark 1, whether he realizes it or not. Let me read you two paragraphs. He says, One of the wonderful qualities of the New Testament's four Gospels is that they force you either to embrace or reject them. You can study the Gospels as literature, he puts it in quotes, if you like, but their logic subverts any attempt to treat them as you would treat other literary texts. Hamlet may reach dizzying heights of sublimity and repay a lifetime of study, but it doesn't ask for radical changes in your thought and behavior and has no power to compel them. He goes on and says, The point here isn't that the Gospels must be true. It is that the Gospels offer no easy way to explain away their content. They therefore demand one of two choices. Either they relay things that Jesus actually said and did, in which case he really is who the New Testament claims he is, or they are haphazard collections of deliberately fabricated stories about a man who may have said some extraordinary things in first century Judea, but who has no more claim on your attention than Socrates. And get this last comment. Either the New Testament Gospels are true, or they are a collection of precious fables. There is no third option. He gets it. He gets it that this man, Jesus, is unlike any other man. You can either accept that statement or you can reject that statement. Those are your choices, nothing else. You can't explain him away or make him palatable. He takes this guy to task for trying to do that. You can't make him palatable to this contingency or that constituency over there, this group or that group. You either take him as he is or you reject him completely. And so as we get ready to go into 2014, I obviously want us to accept him, right? I want us to embrace him. I want us to, to, to take him at his word and believe him for who he says he is. And as we watch him interact with these things, to stand in awe at the feet of the one who made this universe, who is our Savior, our King, and our Lord. There's no other option in my opinion. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this quick reminder of who you are, even in seeing it in this quick overview kind of way where we're reminded of this fact that you are not like any other man. At least you don't claim to be. If what these words say to us is true, then you demand our allegiance and our lives. And if they're false, then we can ignore them completely and walk away. You're either Lord or you're a liar. There's no third option. Lord, we believe that you are our Lord. 
We believe that these words are true, that you are the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, that you have power and that your message is truth and that your heart for us is clear and that we are a part of your plan. And so, Lord, we gather today in all of those beliefs to worship and remember and to be challenged and then to go out and live. And so, Father, as we continue to work through Mark, as we continue to walk these dusty roads with your Son, Will you open our eyes? Will your spirit enlighten us to see so that we can be like him, so that we can be the disciples that he wants us to be, so that we can live our lives on mission just like he did. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for the way it convicts and challenges. May you do that in our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name.